At this time, I will dismiss the children to Children's Church. You see Miss Amy waving over there in the corner, and uh, obviously the kids will have a great time with Amy this morning. And it is always a blessing to have such a great children's ministry. Uh, thank you for all that you do, Miss Amy. Sometimes I don't say that whenever we get ready to uh, send you out, but great to have y'all. Thank y'all all for being a part of our service this morning. It's such a blessing to be able to worship with you and to be able to celebrate the Lord and we do have much to celebrate. Someone recently asked me what my favorite book of scripture was, and probably most of you would know the answer to that. My natural response was Joshua. That's because I preach from it a lot, and often I will refer to it. It is a story of new beginnings, a story of God's promised land, which they had been seeking for four decades. But as I have prepared for this sermon series... I would suggest to you that 1st and 2nd Samuel would now be a close second and third for me. The reason is because there is so much in these two books. There are so many exciting stories. It's an incredible narrative that is constantly being weaved together with excitement and justice everywhere. In fact, it would almost be appropriate if Hollywood were to make movies about what we see happening, although they would probably end up getting it all twisted up by the time we saw it on the big screen. Last week, we looked at some less than godly examples who seem to be chasing after their own selfish desires. You probably remember there were Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And of course, then you had King Saul. The one exception in our reading last week was a man named Samuel, which we're reading from 1st and 2nd Samuel. He is the only character that had a heart that was fully surrendered to God. You know, it's so easy for us to chase after all kinds of things and claim that we have a heart that is fully surrendered to God, but it does not always mean that we do. King Saul probably would have told the people that he was fully surrendered to the Lord until he began to take things into his own hands. And at that point, things began to fall apart. Eli, his sons Hophni and Phinehas, probably gave the appearance of individuals who were fully surrendered to God, at least at various points in their lives. But the reality is they were not living for the Lord so much as they were living for themselves. If you remember in both of the bad examples, with the priestly family, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, and with King Saul, when God's people chose to act outside of God's will, there were consequences. Eli and his sons were no longer able to lead the people of Israel in worship before the Lord, and Saul's kingdom will not last forever. But of course, such judgment didn't necessarily happen immediately. While we awaited the judgment upon Eli and his family, we are told that Samuel continued to grow in stature and in honor. And although chapter 13 foretold the limited reign of Saul, in the chapters that followed, he is still the king of Israel. But it's also in these chapters that we see that God's judgment was absolutely necessary. In chapter 14, Saul's son Jonathan has an incredible victory moment that should have been an incredible moment for all of Israel. Yet within the very same chapter, Saul set out to have his own son killed. 
literally, Jonathan prepares to go into battle. They are basically, the enemy is sitting over the hill and they're ready to attack. And everybody in Israel is afraid. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, come with me. If we go to them and they see us down below and they say, wait there for us and we will come down to you, then we'll stay here. But if they tell us to come up to them, then we will know that the Lord has given them into our hands. And they approach this hill. And as they do, the enemy sees them coming and says, come up here so we can teach you a lesson. <laughs> and Jonathan immediately said to his armor bearer, let's go. The Lord has given them into our hands. There are two of them. And they're about to attack an army that is well equipped. They get up to the top of the hill. And it says that literally the enemy falls beneath them. And the armor bearer simply cuts off heads as they go along. <laughs> what a great victory this turns into. All of Israel will sell it. Well, actually, no, not all of them. Saul will not. Saul actually would have his son. He would attempt to have his son killed. Then in chapter 15, Saul once again acts in disobedience to the Lord, followed by Saul's rebuke, Samuel's rebuke, and God's rejection of Saul as king. And by the end of chapter 16, a previously unknown young man is being anointed to be the next king of Israel, although not even Saul will know yet of David's anointing. And we know that because of what we're going to look at today. This brings us to today's passage. It's one that has been taught in every children's church and Sunday school class for decades. It's literally a story of the little guy standing up to the giant of a man and somehow winning. I was actually going to have, you guys know Jim Hansen, he spoke for me. Actually, if I'd have known Christian was going to be here, I could have used you. I was going to have Jim Hansen stand up here with Colby just to show this, what this was like. <laughs> it is the story of David and Goliath, and it is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I invite you, if you would, to turn with me in your Bibles to this chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Some of you probably could quote a large portion of the story, but I believe that there are messages in here for us. There are lessons we can learn. Don't take it for granted. Oh, I heard that when I was a kid in church. There are actually lessons for us here today. I'm going to throw you a curveball this morning. I've been reading our scripture over the past few weeks in the NIV, but today I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. It's just something a little bit different. It's simply because it's the one that I read from on a regular basis. I encourage you, read from whatever your version is and notice the differences. They're very subtle, but I just enjoy the way that it's worded in this version. Let me set the stage for you. The Israelites are once again in battle with their nemesis, the Philistines. It was the Philistines whom Jonathan had defeated just a few chapters back, but it's a new day and therefore a new battle. As chapter 17 begins, we find the Philistines and Israelite soldiers lined up on a battlefield. And between the two armies, there is a valley with steep hills on both sides. They're both out of range of each other, hiding behind rocks and trees, and whatever else they could find. And this very quickly turns into a standoff. 
on the one hand, neither side can retreat because it would look like a defeat. On the other hand, whichever side chooses to attack will become exposed and will likely incur heavy losses. So they both decide to try and wait each other out. The only exception is that the Philistines have a great warrior named Goliath who daily comes out looking for a fight, but there is no Israelite who is willing to fight. Listen to the story beginning in verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Now, I want to just start out at the beginning. He begins with a question. Why are you all coming out to fight? Basically, what he's saying is, why are you wasting your time? You know you're going to lose. You've come to fight against someone who's much stronger and better. You know defeat is on the horizon. Now, I will say this. What he says actually sounds like a pretty good deal especially if you think your guy has a chance to win. Well, the Philistines feel pretty good about their chances. The reason? Their champion, according to verse 5, is a little more than nine feet tall. He is likely a descendant of the giants who once lived in the promised land, who caused the Israelites to fear when they first went and checked out the land. Remember, they were the ones, according to the spies, we are like grasshoppers compared to them. In addition, his armor would have been ridiculous, likely weighing more than 100 pounds. Do you want to go and fight against this guy? I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want it to turn into a wrestling match. He could sit on you and kill you. So he taunts them, why are you even here? In other words, why don't you just go home in defeat? He's calling them out as wimps, and they can't argue with his logic. Verse 11 says that Saul and the Israelites were terrified and deeply shaken. You kind of picture Saul saying to his troops, who does this guy think he is? And all the troops respond with, yeah, that's right. You tell him. Somebody needs to teach him a lesson. You don't mess around with the Israelites. And then Saul says, all right, so who will go and fight? And you hear crickets because nobody wants to speak up. Now, let me suggest to you that we all have giants that we must face. And I know that they're not all nine feet tall, but sometimes they feel that way. It may be a medical issue or a relationship that needs serious help. It may be work-related or some sort of financial burden that just seems too big for us. I get it. We all know what it's like to face giants. By the way, I do believe that Goliath was a real giant that stood in front of David. This is not told as some mythical story just to make David sound like some great hero. The reality is Saul and the rest of the Israelites 
genuinely were in fear of this man's threats. He was a real individual. We see references to these giants that apparently lived in the promised land prior to the Israelites coming in. This was likely a very real giant. Sometimes the giants we face also feel just as real. You need to know that the real problem for the Israelites was not the giant on the other side of the battlefield. And likewise, the real problem is not your giant either. Instead, it is an invisible enemy. In fact, I'm going to give you three invisible enemies that specifically relate to the Israelites and their giant, and then you will also see how this connects with the giants that you face today. The first enemy is fear. You could probably also call this a focus problem. They've become so focused on the giant that they're afraid of what might happen if they lose. And if you think about it, this makes sense. You're going to send one soldier out to go and fight this guy. And if you lose, you remember the challenge? If you lose, you become our servants, our slaves. If you win, we'll become your slaves. But we got a nine-foot guy who's huge. You don't stand a chance. Israelites are immediately shaken with fear. So often we look at the giants that we face and we become so focused on them instead of realizing that we have a God who is bigger than our giants. We have a God who has been here before. We have a God who can take care of us and provide. It's a focus problem. It turns into a fear problem. The second enemy is forgetfulness. Specific to these Israelites, this is not the first time they faced the giants. I already mentioned it a couple times. I mentioned it, but there were giants living in the land of Cain. When Moses first brought them out of the promised land, they chose to walk away from the promised land. Why? Because they were afraid of those giants. And then 40 years later, as Joshua led them into the promised land, after they had wandered and an entire generation of Israelites has died out, they returned to the promised land. And guess what? Those giants are still there. Yet God gave them the victory over those giants. It was actually Caleb who had one of his sons, or actually married into the family, actually becomes the hero who kills off the giants. Had they forgotten that God was bigger than the giants? I wonder how many of us have seen God move in incredible ways in our lives. The giants that we were facing that we thought there's no way we'll ever be able to make it through this. And somewhere along the way, we forgot that God took care of us before. And he'll do it again. Maybe what needs to happen is for us to actually consider what God has done for us. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, we are called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices unto him. How has God shown you mercy? What has he done for you? 
Instead of looking at the problem and feeling overwhelmed as if there is no way that we can find victory, maybe look at what God has already brought you through. There is a reason for us to have hope because God's already done it before. He can do it again. The final enemy is actually their faith. Or more more accurately, their faithlessness. As we've already discussed, Saul has been walking in disobedience for a while now. And as he walks in disobedience to the Lord, it would be foolish to assume that God was going to continue to bless him. At times, the Israelites would prepare for battle by seeking the Lord's direction and blessing. But there's no record of such a moment in this battle. Perhaps that's because Saul knew that he wasn't right with God. And it was easier to just lose the battle than to come humbly before the Lord and make things right. And that sounds so crazy to me. I would rather lose and maybe give myself the chance, maybe somehow we'll be able to squeak out a victory. Instead of going before the Lord and saying, I know that I have allowed sin to exist in my life and I want to address it. Let me suggest that there are many who would call themselves Christians who know that they are blatantly living in sin and they are dealing with things that are beyond them, but they don't even want to go before the Lord because if they do, they'll have to humble themselves and seek his forgiveness. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But that's the world that we live in. Unfortunately, many in the church have allowed sin to take a dominant role in their lives they're okay with the way things are. And they're just going to fight through it and hopefully they will somehow be strong enough. Well, wouldn't it be better if we just allowed God to do things for us in the first place? Y'all have heard the phrase over and over again throughout the years, when all else fails, try God. Why wait until everything fails? Why not turn to the Lord first and allow him to be the one that wins the victory for you? Maybe some of us need to come back before the Lord with a heart of repentance. What I know for sure is that when we see things through God's lens, the giants don't seem so big. But we probably need to reconnect with him a little bit if we're going to try to see things his way. Well, the next thing I want you to see today is that we not only fight an invisible enemy, but we are also introduced to an improbable champion. As David approaches the battlefield, he is going merely for the purpose of checking in. He's probably bringing snacks to his older brothers, three of which are serving in the military at that point. He wasn't, seen, he wasn't sent there that day to fight. But while he's there, he hears the taunting that comes from Goliath. David is the youngest and the smallest of eight sons, very few people likely saw him as being able to do anything to help that day. In fact, even his own brothers appear to question why he's there. Look at verse 28 for a moment. I know we're kind of skipping through the chapter a little bit. Look at verse 28. But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men. He's asking questions about the taunting and what's going to happen for the one who fights against him. What what will be promised him? When David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. 
What are you doing around here anyway? He demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. Even his own family didn't really expect much of David. By the way, there is an important aspect of this here. If you remember back to chapter 16, when Samuel went to go anoint the next king of Israel, the odds are that he began, Jesse is David's father. Uh, he is told to go to Jesse's household and to anoint one of his sons as the next king. The odds are Jesse begins with the oldest son, perhaps Eliab. And there's this expectation that if anybody's going to be the next king, it's going to be the biggest, strongest, oldest one in the group. wonder if Eliab might have had his feelings hurt just a little bit. When the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his height nor his appearance. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And then you make it all the way through to the final son. And probably at that point, they've given up hope. They come to David, and the Lord's presence rests upon him. The anointing falls to him. I wonder if there wasn't a little bit of bitterness within the family. Either way, they don't expect much of him. While everyone else is cowering behind rocks in hopes that Goliath doesn't see them, it is David who steps up to the plate, the youngest, the smallest of the group. In verse 32, we read, don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul, I'll go fight him. And in keeping with the improbability issue, I love Saul's response. Don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. And he's been a man of war since his youth. Let me suggest to you that the beauty in this is that everybody knows it should be impossible for David to win this battle. His brothers believe it's impossible. Saul believes it's impossible. Everybody around believes this is impossible. It's too big for him. He's too small. He's too young. In fact, if there is a victory, it's too big to give credit to David. If there's a victory, everybody will know that it is the power of God within him that granted the victory. Do you remember the story of Gideon? His story is back in Judges. He was preparing for battle against the mighty Midianite armies. We're talking about thousands and thousands of Midianite soldiers. They're described as being like swarms of locusts or hordes. And Gideon had a mere 32,000 soldiers. But the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many soldiers. Tell the ones who don't want to fight to go home. And 22,000 soldiers went home that day. And you picture Gideon thinking to himself, well, that's okay. We can still do this with 10,000 soldiers. It's a chore. It's going to be tough, but we can win this battle. It just got a lot more difficult but it's okay. And then the Lord says, there are still too many soldiers. By the time Gideon would lead his soldiers into battle, they would number a mere 300 soldiers. 
against a horde of thousands from Midian. Yet the 300 were more than enough. At the end of that story, everyone celebrated Gideon's leadership, but they also knew that none of it was possible without God's intervention. Likewise, I suggest to you that one of the greatest blessings in the world is in knowing that the battle is too big for you and me. It is in knowing that we can't win this battle on our own. It is in those moments of desperation that we often find ourselves leaning in more closely to the Lord. And his plans may not always make sense, but they are always best. I'm reminded of the Battle of Jericho. I'll be quick with this, but do you remember the battle plan? Joshua instructed the people to go and to march around the city of Jericho. Don't say a word. March around the city one time. And then let's go home. That first night they returned home and the soldiers probably thought to themselves, this was just a scouting trip. We'll go back tomorrow and we'll win the battle. The second day they do the exact same thing. Third, fourth, fifth, six days in a row, the exact same thing. At what point do the Israelite soldiers say to themselves, this is the dumbest battle plan I have ever heard of in my life. Even those in Jericho, when they begin to approach on the seventh day, they probably think to themselves, here come those Israelites again, coming to march around the city. The dumbest battle plan ever. But on this day, they would not march around the city one time. They would march seven times. And at the end of the seventh time around, they would blow their trumpets and they would let out a shout and the walls began to crumble and the city was overtaken. The battle plan seemed foolish, but trusting the Lord's plan is always best. It may not make sense to you. It doesn't have to. It's trusting in what God says because he is much better at this than we are. In David's case, we see what could very easily be defined as an impossible battle. After Saul concedes and agrees to send David out to battle, which by the way, that actually was a huge step of faith on Saul's part. The reason I say that, remember the agreement that is there. If your champion loses, you all become slaves. It took a lot for Saul to say, okay, David, you go out there. Because if David loses, guess what he becomes? A slave. After Saul concedes and agrees to send David out for battle, he decides to make sure that David has everything that he needs. So he puts his own heavy armor on David, although I'm not sure what he intended for David to do with the armor. I mean, think about it. Goliath is wearing over 100 pounds of armor. Worst case scenario, Goliath could simply sit on him and win, and the battle's over, so it doesn't work out very well. David puts the armor on, and almost immediately, he declines. Instead, he would simply bring what he was comfortable with into battle. Listen to verse 40. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistines. Based on what 
we read about Goliath's army, armor, his sword, and spear. It is safe to say that David appears ill-prepared for battle that day. It's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. In fact, even Goliath realizes the apparent impossibility of this battle. Remember that David is carrying his shepherd's staff, and Goliath says to him, What am I, a dog, that you would come at me with a stick? He's mocking him. But David does not hesitate. It says that he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Now, y'all know what ends up happening. Again, this is a story that we've heard over and over again. David takes one of the stones and puts it in his sling. And while this beast of a man arrogantly comes out to meet David, David uses the sling to launch this stone into Goliath's forehead. It immediately knocks him to the ground, but apparently he is not yet dead. So what is there for David to do? Is he going to beat him with his stick? <laughs> Remember, he didn't even bring a sword into battle. Instead, David takes Goliath's own sword and he kills him, decapitating this giant. I know, such an ugly picture. It actually tells us a little later that he carries the head of Goliath back to the Israelites. Now picture the collective response on both sides of the battlefield as this takes place. On Goliath's side, the Philistine soldiers suddenly gasp in disbelief. This is not what we expected to happen on this day. And on the Israelite side, an incredible sense of celebration would break out. This is not what we were expecting either. And in the moment of shock, the battlefield could be crossed. The Israelite soldiers suddenly begin to pursue the Philistine army, and the Philistines are on the run. And it was all made possible because one man was willing to step out in God's power. I told you that we all face Goliaths. I want you to know that we also can walk in victory. But at some point or another, it will require us to step out in God's power, to trust that he is bigger than our problem. We're going to have to trust him through action. I recently watched a documentary on a guy who claimed to be a decorated soldier. He apparently fought overseas and received several medals of commendation. And now, having retired from the military, he was training others to do high-end security. The only problem was that he had never served in the military. It was all a lie. He talked a big game, but there was never any true action. There are a lot of people who can talk a big, big game. We need to do more than talk. We need to act. The last thing that I want you to see today is that at the end of this battle, we see immutable glory. Immutable is a big word, so I'm even going to define it. Immutable means unchanging over time. It actually just fit with all the eyes that I was using for alliteration today. David calls out Goliath in verse 45. Listen to what he says. It says, David replied to the Philistine. This is leading up to him killing Goliath. You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, 
the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. What I love about David's announcement is the fact that it is centered upon the Lord and not David. There would be times that David would be recognized, but David is content to point to the Lord. He talks about the Lord of heaven's armies, also known as the God of the armies of Israel. He says, the Lord will conquer you. He says, the world will know that there is a God in Israel. And he adds that those who are here will know that the Lord rescues. Not a whole lot about David there, is there? The only reference to himself is that I will cut off your head. Everything else is about what the Lord will do. I suggest to you that your battle with giants always has the potential to become God's tool to confirm to the rest of the world that God is still on the throne. In fact, my prayer is not that you will have an easy life or that you will no longer have to face any battles or that everything will go your way. Sometimes we need to face giants. But my prayer is that as you face those giants, that God will receive immutable glory as he works miracles in your midst. I know many of your stories. I've heard you share of God's faithfulness as you've had to face giants in your life. But there are many in here that I don't know. There are many in here who have never shared their story of God's deliverance. Maybe you never even realized that God was in the process of delivering you in the first place. Sometimes sharing those stories can be difficult. Perhaps we are ashamed that we had to face some of these giants in the first place. Maybe they were self-imposed. Maybe we did things to put ourselves in positions and we don't want people to know that we got it ourselves into a mess. Maybe you don't want to share your story because it will actually reveal your own personal weakness because you weren't able to do this on your own. Perhaps we don't want the hurt that came with those battles. We don't want to remember. I wonder, though, who needs to hear your story today? Thousands of years ago, there was a battle that took place on a battlefield with a little man named David and a huge man named Goliath. And that story is still challenging people to know that you can stand up and fight. What if someone hearing your story of facing a giant is what they need to know that they too can experience victory if God is fighting on their behalf? I suggested earlier that Saul did not want to call upon the Lord for help. It's because he had a sin problem. I wonder if maybe there are some here who are facing incredible battles today and you've become so focused on the battle that you don't recognize the reason you can't call out to the Lord is because you know there's a sin problem and you don't want that to be addressed. 
It's time to address it. It's time for us to get focused on him and not on the junk that's already there. It's time for us to fix our eyes on Jesus. You can still find the victory. There is hope, but it's not in your strength or your personal abilities. It's on his. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we are grateful for the giants that come our way. And so often we, we try to avoid those giants. We don't want to have to deal with hardship. We don't want the struggles that come. But Lord, we know today, sometimes it's in the midst of those giant encounters that we are most aware of your presence giving us victory over them. So I thank you today for the giants that we have had to face. But Lord, I pray right now that you would help us as we face those giants to lean into you. Maybe today some of us have allowed sin to exist and remain within our lives and they clearly don't belong, but we have allowed them to be there. And then we wonder why you're not blessing us and giving us all of these victories over these giants. And often it's because we aren't willing to surrender ourselves to you in the first place. Lord, I pray right now that if there be anyone in this room that has allowed sin to remain in their lives, I pray that you would forgive them of their sins. You would cleanse them from all unrighteousness. I pray that they would be fully surrendered to you and that from this moment forward, they would walk in knowing that their God is going with them. Lord, will you know that even as believers in Christ, we will face giants. Lord, I just pray that you would be the one to overcome those giants for us. Help us to remember what you've done. Help us to remember how you've provided in the past. And help us now, as we look forward to these battles, help us to look forward with confidence in knowing that you will give us the victory. Thank you for the saving work that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Now I pray that you would equip us for battle until the day comes that we are brought into eternity with you where we will no longer have to face those battles. But until we get there, make us ready. Father, we give you praise for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I love the story of David and Goliath. It's actually one of the most exciting passages, but it's not because it's a cool story with a big tall guy who's nine feet tall. It's because God gave him the victory. And I know that means God can give me the victory today. Same is true for you. Such a blessing to have you. By the way, for our Sunday school this morning, normally we break off and go in different directions. Uh, today, we're actually going to have a combined Sunday school class, and Jeff is going to be sharing as he shares a little bit. Jeff, you guys served in Haiti for a little while as well. Is that correct? No. no? Why did I think you were in Haiti at some point? All right, we'll take that as the reason. Uh, anyways, they are missionaries in Sierra Leone, and we are so excited for him to be able to share with us this morning. So we invite you, if you haven't been to Sunday school before, stick around and you can hear some of what's happening in uh, Sierra Leone. Thank you all for being with us this morning, and go in peace.